Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. And we are back with GSU ENI Radio, broadcasting live from the Georgia State Entrepreneurship and Innovation Institute. Lee Cantor, Stone Payton here with you this afternoon. This is the this is the home stretch, man. We've got three episodes under our belt, but I'm convinced we saved the last one, the best one for lastly. Please join me in welcoming to the program. We've got three guests, but first up, we're going to invite to speak Miss Alyssa Russell. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Well, it's exciting, Stone. Each one of our guests are part of ENI's Startup Incubation and Mentoring course, and I believe, Alyssa, you went through some mentoring with one of the folks here at ENI. You want to talk about her? Yes. Uh, that started with Dr. Isabel Monlouis. Basically, she found me. I'm actually not in the business school. I'm from the College of Education and Human Development, and she found me on LinkedIn. Yeah, and I was like, come over. She's a good finder. She is. She is. She really hunted me down. Like, seriously. <laughs> she's like, I was looking for your phone number. I sent two emails, and I saw it, and I said, I don't know this lady. I'm not in the business school. I'm in education, so I never responded. And then finally. That's not going to stop her. Right. You not responding. But it's been yeah. the best thing that's ever happened. Like, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So talk about uh, the the work that she's helping you with. So I have a social entrepreneurship business called Ready, R-E-A-D-I, and mm-hmm. read right to left, that is I read. So I get engage in social change by upskilling low literate adults. And what does upskilling mean? Upskilling means to elevate one's skill set. So generally, we talk about people as being in unskilled labor, but I don't believe that that's true. I believe any job that you do, you have to have some, some skill. Exactly. Right. So upskilling is the act of enhancing those abilities. Maybe you are currently in a janitorial position and you lack um, digital skills. So if I can provide those skills for you, you can be a manager or supervisor. Mm-hmm. So that is what upskilling is at Ready. So now, had you been working on this kind of mission uh, before? Yes. So I came from, first I was in for-profit working in um, language literacy with non-native English speakers. And then I moved into the nonprofit sector. And it was kind of there that I began to see that hmm, a lot of adults are low literate, but they are also working. So they just don't have access to the right trainings in order to move themselves up. They tend to be in GED programs for one to two years, but it's because of their job schedule. So I thought, what if I could just offer the classes at their job and offer industry specific trainings for them at the job that they're at that could allow them to move up? And then what is, how are you facilitating this work? Is it uh, with like human to human or is it online? Like how do they do the learning? It is face to face on site during work hours paid for by the employer. Wow. How'd you pull that off? A lot of talking. I do a lot of talking, but mostly I found a method of how does it benefit that employer? For the most part, employers do want to engage in social change. That is a big uh, push towards that today. So if you decide to help those employees that generally are omitted, the ones that are in your parking garage or doing the landscaping, then number one, you have better job performance, better job satisfaction, the opportunity to, to promote from within. And in the state of Georgia, if you actually offer a GED class, Georgia gives a tax subsidy to those companies between 250 up to $1,200 if they pass all four GED tests. Wow. So, and then so by going through this program, 
do a high percentage pass the test? Yes. I mean, there are, obviously there are always people who aren't as motivated as others. Mm-hmm. But when you have young adults that have a whole life ahead of them, people tend to just not have access. But once they see that the employer is like, hey, I believe in you. I'm going to invest for you to have training here on the job. Then they're willing to put forth their best efforts. So now walk me through kind of when you had the idea and you said, I'm going to get one of these companies to let me come in there and do the work on site. What was that first? Do you remember the first company that agreed to this? It was the Department of Watershed Management. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they actually wanted just a flyer. They, I was working for a company at the time and they said, hey, can we send some students over to you guys? And I was like... Yeah, I think when you say literacy, most people feel turned off. What do you mean? I can read and write, but they wanted to develop some professional writing skills. So I came over and did a presentation about we can do what's called a uh, professional development. We won't discuss literacy, although that will be the target of our actual curriculum. And we'll say it's about upskilling individuals so they can move up at the Department of Watershed Management. And And so when you framed it that way... People were highly receptive, especially because there were job opportunities that the company were trying to fill. Mm -hmm. So they were very receptive. I did the first cohort of 25, and I actually taught those uh, individuals myself. So now, do you have anybody that's uh, memorable that you remember, wow, I really made an impact on this person's life? Um, actually over the course of the time that I identified, I should be working in upskilling instead of just trying to give people a GED. Uh, there was one woman, her name is actually Sedona and she was homeless at the time that I met her. Uh, and she had only ever passed two GED tests. Today, she works uh, in Buckhead at one of the hotels. Uh, she, I think she's moved up. She was in the kitchen, but she's now in the cleaning department and she lives in West End. She has housing now. Wow. And she had been living on the streets for more than three years. So do you ever get feedback from the the people you work with to say, hey, you know, this really changed my life? Absolutely. Absolutely. It happens all the time. I tend to try to connect with everyone using social media. So I often hear back from others saying, hey, I really miss you. Thank you so much for what you did for me. Thank you for believing that I could be mm-hmm. moved forward because often we just classify people. Oh, if you're a cleaner, you want to be a cleaner and that's your responsibility. But to have someone say, hey, I bet when you were a kid, you didn't say I want to mop floors the rest of my life. It just so happened your circumstances put you in this position. So people are very grateful to have someone believe in them. Now, do you find that more and more organizations are kind of opening their mind to this social change and and helping people up kind of mentality? I do. And I think it does take a lot of convincing. It takes a lot of discussion and it it requires that you have to outline to individuals. If you reach a certain level of success, if you don't reach back and pull someone else up, then you're not actually successful. And either way, anytime there's someone below you on the rungs on the ladder, you're going to have to take care of those people. So either you give them a hand up instead of a handout or you just pay for them regardless. And that's but part of this, from the business standpoint, it's not charity in the sense they're just giving people uh, skills or money. They're actually, there's a business case for, for them to do this because, like you mentioned, this keeps their employees, there's retention, they're, you know, hiring within. Exactly. And you really lower your HR costs. I find the people that I'm trying to serve, those positions tend to have the highest turnover rates. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to companies about, hey, what are you spending annually on recruitment, training, uniforms? Uh, I had actually a case study. I talked to an HR manager from a large hotel group. And he said, Alyssa, it costs us $1,000 to onboard one um, person in our maid service department. And that people typically only stay on the job six weeks. And I was like, yes. And he was like, it's ridiculous. And he was like, yeah, you should definitely, you know, this would be a great industry. And something like um, hospitality is one of the key markets I'm looking to mm-hmm. um, work with. Because in order for them to 
keep up with the classes, they have to stay employed. Right? Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. And the classes just have to be where people can get to them. Mm-hmm. I think we often forget that if you don't have, you don't realize the barriers to success in terms of transportation, child care, and health. Right. You know, it'd be great to say, well, after work, you should go take yeah, a after class. After work, but I got my kids and yes, I got to get exactly. home. Right. And my bus pass only gives me 20 rides a month. So you're asking me for at least two more rides two to right. three times a week. I can't afford right, that. the math is exactly. there. And we just don't think about those things. But I feel it's my job to say, hey, here are the barriers to success, but this is how you can fill that gap for them. Mm-hmm. So now um, from the standpoint for the, the people you're educating, what does a class look like? Like what is if somebody's going to one of these classes, like take me through what a sample class looks like. So the ready process starts with me going in and speaking to the employer about what their skills gaps might be or that they might consider amongst their employees. Um, and then secondly, I go in and meet with the employees and do an assessment to determine what the need is. Sometimes people think, oh, people just don't have digital literacy skills. And perhaps it's actually they don't have math skills. Oftentimes it's a language literacy issue, especially in manufacturing or packing. There are a lot of non-native English speakers in those industries. Afterwards, I kind of present them with, hey, this is what needs to be a 10-week program. This is a curriculum. We're going to do a pre and post test, and I present them with outcomes at the end. So you kind of hear whatever their needs are, mm-hmm. and then you customize a program exactly that is going to help them achieve whatever the outcome they desire is. Exactly. And it's used, it's contextualized to their industry. So if mm-hmm. it's hospitality, I will try to ensure that the content I'm using speaks to things that they're looking at every day. Mm-hmm. So you're using the language they use every exactly. day instead of teaching them the generic language. Exactly. And so now, um, is, are they typically eight to 12 week programs? Typically a 10 to 16 week program would be pretty standard. Uh huh. And then, um, when you started implementing this, was it harder then? Do you have to spend more time educating and now people get it more or it's still difficult for you to get new clients? Um, so I work with a, quite a few partners. There is a big push in Georgia for workforce innovation. So um, I think that it's moderately difficult at this point. It's not so severe that people have heard of, oh, okay, yes, that there's a skills gap throughout, even right. for us who consider we're considered, you know, professionals in our field. Right. But every day there's new technology. So there's a skills gap for us, but even more so for people who are undereducated. So I think people are receptive. They've at least heard of this idea. Mm-hmm. And then um, what about some of the work that you've been doing is starting to get recognized. You're getting grants and you're getting some attention. Yes. So uh, this last year, I was recognized by uh, the Clinton Global Initiative. So in April, I'm headed to Scotland to a conference that's about social entrepreneurship and social change. So we'll all be presenting our ideas and what we're doing. And uh, there will be uh, a few individuals there that might want to invest, international investors, and there'll be a huge marketplace. There's probably over 50 countries attending and people are working on ideas for the environment, for child uh, sex trafficking, and I am working on making us a literate world. Wow. So now um, are you finding partners here in Georgia, Atlanta? Yes, I've been looking, uh, speaking with Atlanta Technical College, which has a whole workforce innovation department, as well as many uh, city government agencies. And then... Um, Talk about um, how GSU is impacted. I know you got this mentoring and that kind of shifted maybe the way you were going about what you were doing. But is there any other ways that GSU has helped you kind of 
Well, here at Georgia State, the inclusivity has been phenomenal. Uh, In my department, education and human development, typically people are just going to be teachers. They're going to go to K-12 education. That's the path. Yes, exactly. So you're on a different path. Exactly. So coming over to the department has been so, everyone's been very receptive to it. It's fine that you're in education, but you're still an entrepreneur and that's what that looks like. And, you know, they really opened my eyes to creating a budget and marketing and having a team and having a board. And these are things that aren't discussed in my home department. Right. So just having access to so many brilliant resources has been phenomenal. And it's really helped me better speak about what I do because before I talked about it in terms of academia versus in terms of economics, which is what people want to hear about. Right. So now what do you think about that shift in the mindset? Do you think that other people in education would benefit from kind of having that shift of like in their path right now, it's I get my degree, I become a teacher, and then I teach, and that's my path. Right. And you're teaching, you're doing the same activity, but you're doing it in such a different way that's more entrepreneurial because you have to go out and find the people to teach. Right. And you have to sell them on the idea of them paying you to teach the people to teach. Exactly. So amongst my student colleagues, everyone's very intrigued that I'm not going to a classroom. They're just like, so wait, how are you doing that? So there's a lot of interest among uh, my colleagues. Uh, are they and, curious yes. or they think you're crazy? No, they think it's great because they definitely also know that there is a need, especially for the parents of the kids that they serve. So there's a lot of like, could you come to my mm-hmm. school? I have a lot of interest outside the state of Georgia of me to come and speak to people about mm-hmm. developing their adult education programs and working with companies. Um, there are a few professors that that I've gotten on board in the uh, CHD department. And at first they were like, so you're doing what now? Right. So you do know there's a school over here. And there. Right. So they teachers, right? Yeah, right. I'm confused. <laughs> they're slowly coming around to it. So they've been very supportive. As I've said, hey, I'd like to take all my electives in the business school so that I can. They're like, yes. why are you doing that? Right, exactly. No one does that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's slowly but surely there's a big turn, I think, across the university in order for others to say, okay, all majors should. I believe that all majors really should have this entrepreneurial um ideology behind them because the world is always changing and mm-hmm. I think traditional education is going to have to change for us to have a better impact and entrepreneurship is going to be the way to go. Yeah, and that says something that from somebody from the education world is saying that entrepreneurship should be kind of included and that's where I think that GSU does a great job from an innovation standpoint to really make that as part of the DNA of the college as a whole. I absolutely agree. And from an academic standpoint, we should be teaching this to our youth. This should be part of 10 through 12 education mm-hmm. because everyone is not well suited to a suit and tie or a time clock. Or to even or, go yes. to college, really. Right, yes. And then so. this opens them up to different paths where they can kind of create their own path. Exactly. And maybe they'd stay engaged and stay in school longer if they knew that. Yes, I think that GSU is an innovator in this respect of saying, hey, everybody, come on over. Good stuff. So now if somebody wanted to learn more, uh, do you have a website for your company? I do. It's consultready.com, C-O-N-S-U-L-T-R-E-A-D-I. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you for having me. All right. Next up on GSU ENI Radio, we got Mr. Andrew Chambers. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Lee. Uh, tell us about your entrepreneurial venture. Um. I am the chef owner. My wife and I are chef owners of Pink's Barbecue. Uh, we're a mobile barbecue company uh, that has a southern soul with an international flair is what we like to say. So now, uh, how did you get into culinary? Have you always been interested in this? Um, actually, I was 
I kind of stumbled upon culinary. I was a salesman. And in my experience, uh, when, when you're in sales for me, when you're, when you work on commission, it can bring things out in you that you don't necessarily, that it brought things out in me. I didn't necessarily like or want to, or, or want to go down that road. Right. And so, uh, I was just taking a break. I think I was on spring break or something one day and, um, my parents owned a place in Miami beach and we're Is that si- where you're from. I grew up back and forth between New Jersey and Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents owned real estate in Miami Beach, but I'm first generation Gen- Jamaican American. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, I was in Miami Beach and my mom said to me, this was in his heyday when Emerald Agassi was a big deal. And she's like, the school Emerald went to was down the street. You want to go see? <laughs> and so I'm like, that'll be cool. Let's go see. And we went on a tour of Johnson and Wales University and I went to, I ended up going to culinary school for a year. Um, it, it was too expensive for me. So my parents owned a convenience store. And so I dropped out of Johnson and Wales and I talked them into putting a commercial kitchen in their store. And I went to the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I, 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 I just rolled a menu what I thought people would like and opened the door. Really? And, so um, what was your gut feeling about what people would like? So my, my parents store, they wouldn't like me saying this, but it was in the hood <laughs> in one of the busiest. Um, I'm from Miami. Where, where in the hood? It was at, it was in North Miami at uh, 105th and Biscayne Boulevard, mm-hmm. right across from Tropical Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but you got a built in audience. If you got good food, Tropical Chevrolet is well, a nice, well, uh, well, that's, flow. What, that's what I was saying. <laughs> Our parking lot sh- was shared with a laundromat. Mm-hmm. There was a huge car dealership across the street and projects all mm-hmm. around us. So I'm like, those people who are in that um, laundromat. They just dropped their, they got nothing to do, buddy. They're going to want to eat. And those car salesmen who, who can't leave. <laughs> they're going to want to eat. They're going to want to eat. So I'm like, we're going to put some hamburgers and some chicken wings and I made some jerk chicken and some curry chicken and like, let's sell it. And the first day I sold out of everything. Wow. And so. Then what'd your parents think? They were like, let's do this again. <laughs> let's do that tomorrow. <laughs> and so, you know, we did it again. All my friends were in culinary school. You know, you tell a bunch of broke college kids, come <laughs> work for me and you can eat for free. Right. That wasn't hard to find yeah. employees. And so, uh. That was in 2003. And at the end of the day, I just realized I'm the youngest of six kids in the Jamaican household. Uh, I've been cooking my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've been in the kitchen my whole life. When I was in second grade, I knew how to season meat. So it just made sense to Hi, me. Hi, I'm Alyssa. I'm the oldest of six. I've been cooking all my life. So you get it. I learned how to season meat around the same time. You get it. So it just made sense for me. And then, um, so then how did the barbecue come into play? I just like barbecue. And um, my wife and I were sitting around, uh, I think it was like 2014. And I had, I had been saying to her, I want to buy a smoker. And she's like, why? And I'm like, I really love barbecue. A lot of time is synonymous with lesser cuts of meat. Right. Because it cooks so low and slow, right. then and I, it can fix anything. Just like Jamaican <laughs> cuisine, 
I love taking the pieces of, of, of meat that people don't really think about mm-hmm. and making them good. And I just believed I could do it. And so we're sitting around with some friends and somehow it came up smoker barbecue. And my friend was like, well, here's a smoker on Craigslist. It was $2,000. And so I said, I'll put in that a was 2000 on Craigslist. So it this had two- to be a big smoker. Yeah, it was a big smoker, but it was really actually like a $15,000 smoker. Somebody uh-huh. had built, you know, they came up on some hard times. And so, I just said it without asking my wife. She gave me a look. <laughs> I said, you put in a thousand, I'll put in a thousand. <laughs> and they said, okay. And that was the first iteration of Pink's barbecue. I went, we bought the smoker. I went to some country town I'd never been in. I didn't feel comfortable there. <laughs> we bought this smoker. We drove it back to Noonan where I live. And, uh, I went in the kitchen and just started making, making recipes, rubs and, and. So you're just trying, just you're experimenting. Trying. And so I think I'm played around with family and friends for like two weeks. And then one Friday I just decided I'm going to go to this dollar general and ask the manager if we can post up in this parking lot. And he said, yeah, I said, I'll feed your staff. He said, okay. (laughs) And the first day we sold out. So you, were you smoking right there in the, in the parking lot or you were, uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty much not the pork butts cause they take some time, but, uh, Everything else, the ribs and the chicken and the corn was right there in the parking lot. And so it's not a food truck. It's bigger than that. It's a trailer, a utility trailer, trailer, a Mm -hmm. dual axle utility trailer that we fabric that had a smoker fabricated. It was built into it. Yeah. Wow. And so that's, you still use that? That, no. So that situation went south. Um, I think just season of life. Uh, we had to put it on the back burner for, for a few years and then. Last year, I knew I'm getting ready to graduate. I'm thinking about after school and so on and so forth. What was your degree in? The whole time, my degree's <laughs> been in, in, first it was managerial science. Right. But I came to Georgia State because they, at the time, they had a focus in entrepreneurship. Right. Since I've been here, they launched a entrepreneurship degree. Right. And so I'm like, that's what's up, because that's me. And so it's been the entrepreneurship because you figure you got the culinary, right? You've already got that. So right. Let me learn some of the business entrepreneurial stuff right. to really well make Ex- you more well-rounded. Exactly. Um, and to enable me to speak to investors or potential right. investors and just know the back office a little more. And so, uh, last year I just, I said to my wife, I said, I think, um, I want to birth pinks back. And that was what it was called before. It was called pinks barbecue before. But since then, we've changed the business model and the and the approach which we're going to do. Right, and then is there uh, is this the one that's here in the metro area? Yes, tanks. There's not one in South Florida. No, 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 no. That South Florida iteration that was 2003. That was just that was entry into culinary, right? To learn, yeah. And then now, Pinks is here in a mobile. Yes, Mobile. sir. Yes, sir. So my company, the name of my company is actually called the Eating Chambers. Mm-hmm. We're a food management company. Um, we want to own and operate food service businesses. The first brand that we're launching is Pink's, Pink's. Barbecue. Um, and then, um, so then where can people go and eat Pink's like right now? So right now, 
Because uh, we we're not eating it here. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> I'm confused too. <laughs> right now, uh, Pink's is we operate on the weekends and for certain caterings. Do you do like festivals or not food? festivals or, yet? But uh, I've been talking with my professor mentor, Dr. Jackson, and he's kind of pushing me in the way of festivals and so on and so forth. But of late, we do corporate catering. So someone will hire you for a specific thing. Right, And you right. show up and you cook for them. Right. But uh, the thing that – um, so Pink's initial goal was to use the mobile aspect to generate revenue to build a brick and mortar. Okay, so that was the goal. That was the, the goal your head when you initially, started. right. right. Um, of late, we've – We've pivoted a little bit, mm-hmm. and we've turned it. You sound in- like an entrepreneur. You're pivoting. <laughs> it's a true entrepreneur. GSU. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, we've pivoted, and we're actually developing Pink's to be a mobile, franchisable model. Oh, nice. And so uh, the goal is to turn the mobile concept into the product itself and franchise and franchise it out. It, will it be a food truck or you're specifically saying mobile and not food truck? When is we that- say mobile, um, the goal with franchising is giving people opportunities. Mm-hmm. So some, some entrepreneur may have the opportunity to raise 30, 40, 50, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, or have the resources to buy a food truck. Mm-hmm. But you might have the small guy who has 10 grand mm-hmm. to get it all said and done and start his future. And so I'm, I keep saying mobile because I want to give both of those people the opportunity right. at whatever stage in life, at whatever they are. stage they are. So mm-hmm. we right now, I have a one year old daycare is very expensive. And right. so I don't have 30 grand for a food truck right now. So I literally bought a utility trailer. I bought some propane tanks. I know a welder and we're building another smoker mm-hmm. and, um, but you're making it the, uh, Andrew chambers way, exactly the way you want it to be. Ex- so, exactly. so it's replicatable. Exactly. And what we're doing is we're formulating right now recipes and and procedures. The other thing about Pink's is I was at Georgia State and I met a a journalist and a barbecue historian. His name is John Akmudi. He wrote a book called Smoke Lore. And this is what he says. He says, barbecue is the English version of a Spanish word describing an Indian cooking technique. Now, the preconception is that for most people, it was for me that barbecue was American. Mm-hmm. But Jim says some other stuff. But after hearing that and hearing him speak, the bottom line is barbecue is a cooking technique. Right. Wood and fire, direct or indirect heat. People have been doing that since caveman. Right. The dawn. Right. So we wanted to turn pinks into a brand that not only sold the pulled pork and the coleslaw and the ribs, but also paid homage to barbecue from around the world. Mm -hmm. So jerk from the Caribbean, asada from Latin America, yakitori from Japan. So pinks, you will find the staples that you expect to see when you hear barbecue. But when you come to pinks barbecue, you'll also get that global influence as well. So now in Jamaica, how do they do barbecue there? Barbecue, Jamaican barbecue is referred to as jerk. And it's a so jerk isn't a spice necessarily. It's, it's also a method a of preparation. Of it's yes, preparation, but also cooking. Yes. Uh-huh. So it's um, characterized by pimento wood, pimento spice over indirect heat to te- and cooked for a long period of time to tenderize and impart flavor. So I have a 
we've created a jerk recipe. We marinate our meat for at least 24 hours. Um, I found a source to get authentic pimento wood. I want for me and authenticity is important. Mm -hmm. So we got pimento wood imported from Jamaica and we make authentic jerk chicken, jerk pork, jerk fish. So what, how, um, in order for uh, somebody to execute this at scale for you, you're going to need to have systems for them. Right. So, uh, right. So for us, what we're crafting right now is the recipes and we're crafting um, a model in which initially we would prepare the food and we can sell the food to our franchisees and then they can, but they have to smoke it. Right. right. They'll have to smoke it at a certain temperature for certain periods of time, which we would train them on. But you're sending them the meat already seasoned, pre-seasoned and ready to go. They just got to throw it on. Or at the very least the seasonings and the mounts, and they can put follow the follow the, the directions. And um, so now, Pink's has been selling stuff here locally. You already have. You're already doing some version of Pink's. Right, right now we we do do Pink's a version of Pink's. Um, pretty much part time as needed. When people call, we answer. I graduate in May, and the goal is after I graduate to step into Pink's uh, more aggressively. Um, and replace one of these full-time jobs that me and my wife have. <laughs> That's right. So now looking back at your GSU kind of career here. Yes, sir. Has it um, kind of helped you in the way that you hoped it would in terms of visualizing how you can transfer some of those culinary skills you obviously have for mm-hmm. having been doing it for so many years yes, sir. into some business that can, you know, there can be a, an empire being built here based right. on some of these, because you're no longer thinking I'm going to just open a store. This could, there could be a thousand pinks. Absolutely. We want to, at our core, we want to create opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. I want to create opportunities. I get kind of emotional about it. I know what it is to have nothing. Mm-hmm. And I know what it is to have a lot. And I know what it takes to get from point A to point B. And I want to, give people especially restaurateurs the culinary business is very expensive and we're trying to create something that will give chefs or people who have a passion for serving food the opportunity to start on their dream um georgia state i live an hour from campus and between my house and this campus there's about four or five schools that i could have gone to right i chose georgia state specifically because they have a focus and a heart and a passion and now a degree for entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so Georgia state absolutely has um, taught me a lot. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Like I said, my parents own a bunch of real estate, so I've seen it a lot, but Georgia state has taught me one. Why, why what I see has been done. And it's also taught me the value of people and networking. Jamaicans are very prideful people. So my parents, they, they, they laced up their boots and they just did it themselves and they didn't need anybody. That's not scalable. <laughs> right. <laughs> I learned that at Georgia State. Exactly. Wow. Another good entrepreneur word, <laughs> right. scalable. That, that, that's Georgia State. I didn't know that in 2014 when I started at Georgia State. But also it sounds like, uh, both Alyssa and you have, um, have a component of the social change and you're trying to, 
help people help people up and not just hey this is about me just making money this is about really serving a community and building a framework that can help others succeed right so for pinks personally like i said i want to create opportunities for my staff and for franchisees um socially my wife and i are passionate about um health so we want pinks a portion of all our proceeds to also go towards um, eradicating obesity in the United States. And we want part of our proceeds to go towards placing children in their forever homes. We're very, we love, we love adoption. My wife and I are in the process of adopting a baby. And, um, we just feel like those are two things, three things that are very, very important to us. It's what we stand for. And that you're right. It is what motivates us. So now, um, is it going as fast as you'd like? I don't like working for people. So no, (laughs) however, you know, you gotta, my wife and I have tried our hand at a few different things. Um, we're still committed to, to launching our own thing. It's not going necessarily as fast as we like, but the difference is this time we feel like the people and the resources and our, and our own mental are in a place that'll make it work this time. Mm -hmm. So you're pretty confident in your future. Yes, sir. So what do you need more of? How can we help? Um, I need exposure. And so right now, actually this week, we're working on getting our social media platforms launched and our website. But uh, we just need to get the word out. You know, we can come back and I can bring good food, a lot of it too. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, we do a franchise marketing show. Okay. So when you're ready to franchise, we'll get you on that show. Well, that'll be awesome. But uh, until then, people can find me on Instagram. All right. Is there a website? Um, the website will be pinksbarbecue.com, P-I-N-K-S, barbecue with a C.com. That will be um, launched in the next week or so. And my personal uh, Instagram, which people could get notifications and so on and so forth, are at is at D, the letter D, real chef Drew on Instagram. Drew Chef Chambers, I'm sorry. And that's D, real chef Chambers. D, real chef Chambers on Instagram. Good stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and uh, best of luck. It sounds like you got a lot of this figured out now. I appreciate it. Got to get the word out. Stay tuned. All right. Well, hang with us. We got one more guest. All right. Next up on GSU ENI Radio. Mr. Yazda Navabi. Hey, I'm Close. really excited to right, be here. You got that name a little right? Some yeah, of it right? Good. Yeah. So uh, did you learn anything or are you just hungry right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting and I think you guys have great ideas Thank and you. I hope uh, you find nothing but success. So now you're here to talk about food upcycles. Yeah, so actually what, what to do with the food after it's eaten. There you go. I'm it's talking about. Everything's connected, <laughs> right? It is. Small and world. it's important. Yeah. So tell us about food upcycles. How are you serving folks? So basically our, our main mission is to divert food from landfills and repurpose it and to turn it back into soil. It's called it's a process called composting. And so compost really is a nutrient-rich soil made of organic things like uh, foods, leaves, grass, all types of things like that. Now, that's something that people don't realize, um, that the nutrients in soil nowadays are much less than there were historically. Is that right? Absolutely. And there's there's not too many studies on this, but there's been a few. 
uh, where they took vegetables from, I believe, the 30s, and then they cross-examined them, the same vegetables, same sizes in the 80s, and they had a lot less nutrients and vitamins in them. Mm-hmm. Um, a powerful quote that really stuck in my mind when I read it was, you would have to eat eight oranges today to match the amount of vitamin A that your grandparents would have had in one orange. Wow, that's um, shocking, isn't it? Yeah. Is that just in America or is that all over the world? Um, it varies, but it's it's really bad in America because the, the businesses have been so optimized to produce more output. And right. so it really depletes the soils of all the nutrients. Right, so they're them. creating things that look like oranges, but they may not really be oranges when it comes to a nutrition standpoint. Exactly. I mean, I remember when I was a child, we used to eat strawberries and they would drip down our faces. Right. And now you buy strawberries and they're just, they're completely different. Right, that's kind of weird. They're dry. (laughs) You don't think about it. I mean, you just think, oh, it's a strawberry. I'm eating something healthy, but you got to eat. It's not the same. Yeah, and, you know, um, we think, so we think if we eat a certain amount of fruits in a day, we're covered for our vitamins. But the thing is, those vitamin levels in that fruit have been diminishing, but the standards have kind of stayed the same. Right, they're still saying, you know, 10 strawberries, but it, it might be now 50 strawberries to equal the 10 that it used to be. Exactly. So now, how did you kind of come up with this composting kind of angle? So I'm a big nature guy, and I, I love the planet. I love the environment. Um, and for a while, I, w- I reached a point where I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, you know, for, for good. Because um, I've done some stuff in the past. But I, so I used to be a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was helping people be healthy and reach their goals. However, it's not, it wasn't very scalable. And I was limited by my time, and I wanted right. to do more. And I really wanted to do something uh, to help the environment. And I started looking around all these different industries, and a lot of them um, are multi-million-dollar industries. They're they're big things. They're hard to get into with a lot of barriers. And then I stumbled across composting and landfilling, and I didn't realize how bad it was. And um, landfilling and the negative effects kind of flies under the radar. But they're very harmful to our planet um, for multiple reasons. But one of the main ones is they produce a lot of greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. So um, across the world, landfills uh, account for 11% of all the methane produced. And methane is one of the um, gases that produces the greenhouse effect. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more powerful than carbon dioxide. And that's what's causing some of this climate change. Yeah, that's that's a big contributor. Uh, so basically, it's it's a complicated process, and usually I lose people when I try to explain all of it. But when food goes to landfills, it rots um, in a negative way, and it produces a lot of gases and other harmful side effects. So now you're going to take the food, and then what do you do with it now? So basically, um, you mimic the natural process. You just kind of speed it up, mm-hmm. but you let the ingredients break themselves down because they have natural microbes and bacteria on them, and then if you put them together and you give them air and water, they just break themselves down naturally. So now is this a device that you want people to buy? Like how how would I participate in this if I wanted to do so this? So it's a service. Uh, we'll, we'll pick your trash up, but it's only food trash. So then, then I'm going to have to put my food trash in a separate bin? Separate it, yes. Do you give me the bin or I have to have my own bin? Yes, we're going to give bins and also biodegradable bags. And then so uh, you give me that and then every week or month you come by and take this away? Yeah, so the customer controls it. Um, you can do weekly, biweekly, um, however you want. So now when the soil, you're going to create soil that's more nutrient-rich. Yes. Do I get to keep the soil or then 
You're that could just be an taking option. it away. Uh, that is that could be an option. Um, but as far as the market research we've done, a lot of people wouldn't have too much use for it, uh, especially people living in urban areas. But so, how, what are you going to do with the soil? Because so the soil is going to be like super soil, super soil too. Yeah, right. It's good. This going to be good stuff. Yeah. So we're going to supply it to farmers and growers, and through doing that, we're hoping that we can grow um, the organic farming initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, Georgia is not one of the top uh, states for organic farmers, although we are one of the top states for farmers. Period. But just not organic. Exactly. So we're hoping that this can help incentivize and. Um, push farmers to go organic. And then so who how does the money flow in this business? Do uh, if you're taking my trash, am I paying for you to take the trash? Yes. And so, then the farmers are paying for the soil too. Yes, correct. So you're making money two ways. Yes. But Good there's a uh, there's a lot of overhead in the business. So Absolutely. Kind of I'm not begrudging you anything, but uh, that's pretty smart to now have two people buying your the same thing pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um but have you tested this? Like, what stage of a business is this? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of uh, you know how startups startups are. They're pretty it, crazy. You can't do it everything. In your head? But um, is, or do you actually have you done this? No, we have proof of concept. Uh, we're just trying to grow it more and get it more refined. But um, there are businesses right now that pay for it. Uh, there are a few composting services uh, in Atlanta, but it's not very big yet. Mm-hmm. But there are people that are paying for it, and there's even more people that are willing to pay for it. One of the big incentives to compost is that. Um, 18 to 40% of all our trash is actually food. So if you can. And food the, could be, it isn't necessarily like food. It could be like the eggs shell, the eggshells. Eggshells, yeah. Right. So that's kind of a. That's compostable. That's paper compostable. Towels, you know, some paper products. Right. So, like, what if I ate a steak in the bone? Is that compostable? So there's different mm-hmm. forms of composting, different methods. Mm-hmm. The one we would be doing would not take meat. So it's no no meat. It's only vegetables, like the the ends of a carrot or something yeah, like basically that. Basically, no meat, uh, no dairy, and then no eggs. But mm-hmm. eggshells are fine. Uh huh. And then, so I just put this in a bin or a, a plastic bag. Yeah. And, and then uh, it doesn't really smell as if you pick it up once a week. Uh, it's not going to smell. And the thing is, it's going to reduce your actual landfill trash drastically. Mm-hmm. So you can probably save on that, especially for businesses. And then, um, and then you take it somebody has a truck and you're just driving by and picking up all yep. these bags yeah we pick it up <laughs> and then you know we process it and turn it to clean compost and then so you're putting in the taking all that stuff and putting it into something that's making this rich nutrient rich soil yeah you kind of again there's different methods what we would be doing would be windrow composting so you basically kind of set it in a line and you just let it sit there and that's then you it just, so that's you're it just pouring it out in a pile in yeah. a line you have to turn it, and then you kind of have to cater to it. So then you, you have to manually, sure, like, kind of move it around. Yeah, you want to make sure the parts are, are uh, breaking absorbed, down evenly, right? And then at the end, the does it look different? The soil? Yeah, it's it's actually really cool. It goes through this period, um, this heating period, and mm-hmm. so the because there's so much microbial activity, it heats up, and that heat actually pasteurizes it, so it kills all the bacteria and fly eggs or whatever might be in there. And in the end, you have this beautiful black um, nutrient-rich soil with like small chunks and stems. So now if you were to look at a jar of that soil compared to a, a jar of soil that might have been you know, right next to it but not with all the composting, mm-hmm. it would look – it would be a different color? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Georgia, you, you might have some – you probably have red clay. 
But if you actually, you know, on farms and they have soil, it will be like a, a light brown, whereas this one would be dark, dark black. Like, dark black. Yeah. Really? So it's very dramatically noticeable. Yeah, and it, it retains moisture. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just uh, – it has a lot of benefits for soil. One of them is moisture retention. So now at this stage of your business, what do you need more of? I need uh, more awareness and uh, investments. Uh, we're definitely looking for investments. Uh, we have to get land. There's some overhead, some uh, minimal machinery. We have a simple process going uh, to begin with, and then we're we're planning to scale it. But to begin, um, just nothing crazy. Is it just you, or do you have partners? I have a couple of teammates. I have two research assistants right now and a head of design, mm-hmm. and I'm looking to recruit people, and passionate then, people. And then are they? Can they be anybody, or do they have to be kind of these environmentally? people or like what so kind of background are you, do you need them to be the biggest thing is uh is the passion because this is a, a socially um and environmentally conscious um company mm-hmm. and what we, we what we want to do is not just make profits but we want to make the world a better place and help the environment so that's number one but then obviously we're looking for competence and, and drive um this is something that is kind of lacking a lot of awareness so we really need to drive it home and let people know the benefits and and it's really easy to do and participate in so now at Georgia State, uh, you were getting your degree in economics, right? Yeah, business economics. And then so you found out about the entrepreneurship and you added that to the uh, your to-do list. Yeah, to I, get took, a double I took major. Uh, one mandatory elective. <laughs> it was uh, entrepreneurial thinking. And I just um, I just realized it just clicked and I was like, this is for me. And so, so what part just, of about it clicked? Um, just the process. Um I was just thought of entrepreneurship as just someone who, you know, invests their own money, but it's it's just a different mindset and different uh, mental habits and patterns. And so I did my first pivot and uh, I didn't want to drop that major because I worked so hard on it. So right. I just added the entrepreneurship major and I'm just going for this full force now. And then, um, so now though, you're not necessarily looking for a job. You'd rather get funding for this and make this dream come true. The food upcycle. That's your first choice. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm testing the market and getting stronger proof of concepts and more customers on board. And I'm really hoping that, you know, by the end of uh, fall 2020, we can get this thing going. And uh, what, where are you at in school? Are you graduating so, now or you're... So you're I'll be finishing my first degree this May and then after this summer, my second degree. Okay. So you're on a little bit of a clock here, yeah. right? And then now, uh, is it hard to find people that want to get involved in the company? Kind of, you know, startups are always kind of a, it's always a big risk. It's like, are you willing to jump? Um, but we have a great idea here and we are proving the concept, proving the business model. So as we develop it a little further, I'm sure people will be excited to jump on board. Do you need to find more like kind of restaurants that will give you their food leftovers or do you need more individuals at their homes? Like what group do you want to kind of get the waste products from? As of now, we're looking to target more businesses, so it's larger volume, kind of streamlined operations. And then in about three to five years, we look to start um, servicing residential. Yes. So now, so you are looking for restaurants or catering yes. companies that have a lot of food waste? Absolutely. And Even um, retail stores, grocery stores, things like that. So have you found anybody to test with? Uh, we don't have our, our pilot up yet. But we have people who, you know, expressed have, an interest. Yes. And they would say, this is how much I'd be willing to pay. And, you know, I know a guy with a, a, a barbecue. Right. So <laughs> me, a, lot of meat. a lot of meat, though. Yeah. <laughs> and um, do you have any farmers that would be open to taking the soil once you have it? 
Yeah, um, that is also another issue on the other side. Is uh, pure organic compost is really hard to find, mm-hmm. and another trend is that a lot of times it's not, um, what would you call it? It's not um, a steady supply. So you might need it now to, you know, for your for your harvest, but you get the compost late. Uh-huh. That will affect you. Sometimes it can take months for you to get your compost. Right, and it's so hard a lot to, times get, to get a reliable source. Right. So, and that's, you're trying to be that reliable source. Exactly. Good stuff. Well, congratulations. It sounds like a great idea, and it sounds like you're you're moving in the right direction. Yes, sir. So now if somebody wanted to learn more, uh, what's the best way to find you online? Yeah, so our, our uh, social media is up, but it's not really uh, producing material yet. And I'm working on that with my head of design to start pumping some stuff out. But it's uh, Food Up Cycles on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's Food Up Cycles. Good That's stuff. Well, thank you for sharing your story and best of luck. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thanks to all of our guests today. This is Lee Cantor for Stone Payton. We will see you all next time on GSU ENI Radio.